Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Watching Grenfell, The Lost Art of Penitence, by Graham Tomlin. The camera looks down over fields, the green and pleasant land of England far below. It moves slowly over the landscape until gradually it begins to fly over the streets and parks of North London, past Wembley Stadium with its well-known arch, curving into the sky and back down again. And finally, as the urban sounds grow louder, it begins to home in on a small, dark, rectangular spot in the centre of the screen. As it gets closer, the familiar outline becomes clear. It is Grenfell Tower. Today, when you go past the tower, just off the West Way, a major road artery into central London, the tower, or at least the remains of it, is covered in white plastic sheeting. It's a kind of compromise between those local people who can't bear to look at it every day and those who want it to remain visible as a stark monument to the injustice and greed that led to the fire that killed 72 people in June 2017. Steve McQueen is a Londoner, a well-known filmmaker, director of 12 Years a Slave, and winner of the Turner Prize. As the plastic sheeting was about to go up to hide the grim nakedness of the tower, he wanted to ensure the story of Grenfell was not forgotten, so filmed the building in January 2019, just as the ghostly shroud began to creep up the side of the building. His remarkable film, simply called Grenfell, has been showing at the Serpentine Galleries in Hyde Park. He recently voiced dismay that few politicians had come to see the film, despite being invited. They really missed something. The camera homes in on the tower and gradually begins to rotate slowly around it. We peer into the rooms of this tall, charred block, standing like a black cliff face, a literal tomb in the heart of London. Behind it, there is the gleaming, shining face of the Westfield shopping centre, cars driving up and down the slick dual carriageway that flows past it. But the focus is relentlessly on the horror of the tower in front of us. The camera goes round and round, occasionally drawing out, but then being drawn back in, mesmerised by the blackness, the darkness, the shell of the tower and the ghosts of the lives it destroyed. Watching it brings on a mixture of fascination and nausea, nausea from the relentless circular motion of the camera, fascination at the details. Pink plastic bags of debris in what was someone's living room. The remains of a kitchen cabinet that had somehow survived the inferno. And for me personally, as the Bishop of Kensington at the time, memories of being there on that day, watching the tower burn, talking and praying with dazed survivors evacuated from blocks around Grenfell, listening to firefighters with the agonising dilemmas of trying to reach the highest floors with breathing apparatus that wouldn't allow them to get there. As the camera revolves around the tower, there is no sound, no commentary at all, as if there are no words to describe what happened there. 
We see into the flats that were once homes, with kitchens, bedrooms, toys and family mementos. We look into the haunting floors at the top of the tower in which many of the victims died. Pushing upwards by the flames and the advice to stay put until help came. But of course, none ever did. Watching the film reminded me of standing before a medieval painting of the crucifixion, such as Grunewald's famous Eisenheim altarpiece. Pilgrims would stare for hours at such paintings to bring home to their hearts and minds the consequences of their sins and to help them resolve to live differently. We don't do penitence very well in our culture. This is a penitential film, and it's what the politicians who didn't turn up to watch it have missed. Steve McQueen, just like Matthias Grunewald, wants us to look hard at the reality of what we have done. Innocent life lost in the most horrific way. The altarpiece focuses on the intense suffering of Christ, the stretched sinews, the blood pouring from the wounds, the agony from those helplessly watching on. Just like this film that keeps your eyes fixed on the shattered shell of a building, the painting doesn't let your eyes stray from the grim reality. Yet there is a difference. Just faintly in the dark distance of Grunewald's painting are the glimmers of dawn. On the horizon, the sky lightens just a little. It is, of course, a reference to the resurrection just around the corner. It doesn't annul the pain, doesn't offer easy, facile optimism, pretending that the awfulness doesn't matter. Yet it makes contemplating it bearable. It allows you to focus on the revulsion, yet makes it endurable by offering the hope of resurrection. And as Christian thinkers and prayers have insisted over the years, you only get to resurrection through death. Through death, not by avoiding it. At the time of the fire, I remember doing numerous media interviews with news outlets from across the world, with journalists hungry for some words to satisfy the global fascination with this tragedy. What could I say? What could possibly make sense of such a thing? I resolved that in every interview I would try to acknowledge the dreadfulness of what had happened, but also to strike a note of hope that despite what had happened, lives could be rebuilt, a community could find healing. Then there was a road out of pain, one day, to peace. All because I am a Christian and therefore have to believe that resurrection follows death. Steve McQueen's brief film is compulsive watching. If you get a chance, you really should see it as something that brings home the horror of Grenfell more than anything I've seen. It is Grenfell's Good Friday, Grenfell's altarpiece. Watching it with Christian eyes, however, I kept looking for the glimmers of dawn. Grenfell has been subject to a huge amount of commentary since the fire. There are those on the left who see it as a monument to corporate greed and capitalist rapaciousness. They demand justice for Grenfell, which for many means locking up or punishing the guilty. There are those on the right who see it as simply a dreadful accident that could have happened anywhere. One side calls it a crime, the other calls it a tragedy. Which was it? The left is perhaps rightly consumed with anger, demanding justice, legal convictions as resolution. 
Many on the right look for a while, yet eventually avert their gaze, thinking of it as one of those things, just an awful tragedy. I remember a council official saying to me, well, one day we just have to move on from Grenfell. What happens beyond lament? It is one thing to grieve those who died. It's also something else to critique the failures that led to it. Issuing prison sentences to the guilty may satisfy the desire for justice, but doesn't in itself bring about a new, hopeful, common life that renders simply unimaginable the pattern of moral compromise and sheer carelessness for the safety of others that led to Grenfell. On the other hand, simply consigning it to the category of awful accidents doesn't take seriously the grievous sins that led to the fire and fails to give due recognition to the suffering of those who died. Neither left nor right can offer us a sure way forward. That is where we are short of vision at the moment. An event like Grenfell easily falls off the radar of public attention because we don't want to look at it. And maybe that is because we're not sure it will ever get any better. We need a way to keep looking at something painful until it is healed. That is the point of penitence, to go back to painful places in our lives to find healing. Yet you can only really do that if you believe healing can be found, that death ends in life, not the other way around. The Christian story that holds together death and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, enables us to look at death and tragedy and horror full in the face, as this film so eloquently enables us to do. It enables penitents to be hopeful, not hopeless. Yet it also enables us to bear it, because alongside it, it says that there is a reality beyond both crime and tragedy that is not just retributive justice, but a deep underlying trajectory of the world that is headed for life, not death. Of course, the resurrection is not a political solution. It doesn't convict the guilty or dictate future housing policy, important as those are. But it points us to the deeper reality, that perhaps what we need today is not so much political, but spiritual renewal. We need a deeper vision of life and death that gives us a reason to hope, that offers a future. We need a bigger story, a story that kindles hopefulness, that can stir hopeless hearts and the glimmers of dawn, even in the darkness of a world filled with so much pain. The Really Annoying Thing About Dying by Roger Bretherton The death of my dad was sudden and unexpected. I don't know why it is that from the moment he died, I have had to fight the almost irresistible urge to refer to him as father, a term of address I never used about him or to him during his life. Perhaps in some psychotherapy session at some point, my therapist referred to my father and I may have followed suit. And maybe occasionally, when socialising with those who seemed a cut above my largely lower middle class background, I called him father so as to avoid the flat northern vowels that would expose me as an interloper. But that was just to fit in. 
On all other occasions, he was decidedly not father, and definitely just good old plain dad. But for some reason, the moment he died, it felt like dad wasn't enough. I now had to call him father. Those were the rules. At death, he became a classic, a museum piece, a part of history. Not the dad who taught me how to ride a bike by panting and sweating my five-year-old self round the block. But the father who taught me to be a man or something like that. The F word has gravitas, presence, authority. Dad's a human, often bewildered, occasionally pissed off, eminently huggable, easily taken for granted. Just there. Admittedly, Freud would have lost significant gravitas if Oedipal theory had considered common or garden dads and not cigar-smoking, brandy-swilling fathers. And no doubt the climactic scene of The Empire Strikes Back would have lacked considerable pathos had Darth Vader casually quipped, No, Luke, I'm your dad. The Curse of the Martyr, writer Albert Camus, was to have other people tell their story. The principle doesn't apply just to martyrs, it's true of all those who die. To be dead is to become a character in other people's anecdotes. That's the really annoying thing about dying. We become a topic of gossip. People get to talk about us without the courtesy of ever having to talk to us. We become object, no longer subject. I think that's why I resist calling my late dad father. It objectifies him makes of him something he wasn't. It most definitely fails to do justice to all that he meant to me. I say he died suddenly. It was a Sunday morning. I was in church at the time. Actually, worse than that, I was on stage speaking to a church. As a psychologist working in academia, I teach and train all kinds of people in every kind of organisation imaginable. But every now and then I get to speak in churches. On this occasion, I was talking about character, the positive qualities of being, like love, gratitude, hope, wisdom and so on, that make life worth living. When I stepped off the stage, my wife was waving to me from the back of the room, which was weird, given that we don't go to that church and she hadn't come with me. When I wandered to the back of the auditorium wearing my what-are-you-doing-here face, she simply said, "'It's your dad.' and held me tight in a hug that lasted longer than usually permitted in polite company. For someone who prides himself on social insight, it shames me to say that it took a while for the penny to drop. We were in the car with the engine running before it finally dawned on me what she meant. I try not to make too much of divine timings or fate, but there was something odd in the timing of getting that news. In that month, I had addressed church congregations in three Sundays in a row, which, as someone who is generally lazy and prefers not to work on weekends, is an unusually intense frequency. But over three successive Sundays, I had reflected aloud with those congregations that there were prayers that had accompanied the various stages of my life, prayers that I found myself praying, almost as if they were prayed through me, as if they had chosen me rather than I they. In my twenties, I had found myself praying as regularly as a heartbeat, God, do whatever you need to do with me to make me into the person you would like me to be. 
It was a radical invitation for God to put me through whatever was needed to become who I was meant to be. But then the prayer faded. Its visit was over. It had done its work and it had moved on. But as I addressed the congregations on those three Sundays, I mused aloud that while the prayer of my twenties had departed decades before, I found a new prayer stirring in my forties. Now, as the father of teenage boys, my new prayer was, God, do whatever you need to do with me to make me the father you would like me to be. In the weeks that followed, people asked me whether I had had a good relationship with my dad. The most accurate answer was, we had the best relationship of which we were both capable. We both tried in our own ways to deepen our connection, but we were like the lovers in a romantic comedy. We always managed just to miss each other. When he tried with me, I didn't want to know. For several years, he left a book lying around at home that he wanted me to read. I never saw anyone touch it, but it moved around the house under its own steam. It was by my bedside, in the toilet, on the dining room table. McCavity the mystery cat would have been proud. It was called Things We Wish We Had Said. We may have wished, but we didn't say. I never read it. Years later, when I tried with him, he was too flustered to respond. Both of us, in our own ways, lacked the courage to connect any deeper. But I was never in any doubt that he loved me, and I him. He died of heart attack on a Sunday morning asleep in bed, while my mum was at church. Almost immediately, his absence prompted a profound change of consciousness in me. When he was alive... I was most aware of how different we were. I defined myself in opposition to whatever he was. If he was gentle, I was assertive. If he was indecisive, I was ambitious. If he was inexpressive, I was articulate. If he was like that, I was like this. And yet, almost at the very moment of his death, a reversal of awareness occurred. I started to see just how very much like him I was. His gentleness his uncertainty, his scepticism, his care, his humour, were all mine. There is a rule in family therapy that adult children relating to their parents should set their expectations to zero. We never truly see our parents until we stop viewing them through the lens of our own desires, what we wanted from them but never got. Until we do that, our lives don't really work. We sit around waiting for an impossible transformation, a payday that never comes. The moment our parents become exactly how we would like them to be, not as they are. For me, that moment of acceptance for Dad only came when he was gone. I accepted him as he was when there was nothing left to accept. I don't write this with any great sense of guilt or regret at opportunities lost more with a sense of gratitude for what was given, but often taken for granted. Oddly, though, in the shadow of that seismic shift in my interior furniture, I detected the stirrings of an answer to my own prayer to be a better father. No longer compelled to define myself in contrast to what he was, I was freed to be what I was, both like and unlike him. And to be fair more like him than I cared to admit. At some visceral level, I came to appreciate how much of myself originated with him. I came to accept myself as a dad 
and my dad as a father. Meditation and Meaning Beyond the Bee by Jane Williams There is an increasing recognition of the power of meditation as a practice that promotes well-being. It is even being suggested as a tool alongside others for managing anxiety, depression and the other mental health-related symptoms of our time. Meditation doesn't have to have a religious dimension to it, although it is a practice that has been found in all religious traditions, including Christianity, for centuries. The techniques of meditation are very similar, whether used by someone who is religious or not. Meditation, at its most basic, requires us to attend to our body, hearing and calming our heartbeat and our breathing, noticing the areas of tension and even pain in our body, finding a posture that can be maintained with comfort, but without sloppiness for a period of time. It also requires us to notice the moment that we are in, to hear the regular sounds around us, to see the way in which light falls through the window or from a candle flame, or to see the fly or the bee getting on with daily life. Deliberately, we do not try to control these things or allow our busy minds to tell stories about them or to try to rearrange them in any way. We simply give them our attention. Although this sounds easy, it is surprisingly hard to begin with. It makes us realise how inattentive we usually are, how hard we find it to be still, how little our minds are accustomed to concentration, more used to veering wildly from one topic to another. Meditation helps us to notice this, not by asking us to do the impossible and force our minds to emptiness, but by gently, firmly, taking each thought as it flits across our brain and putting it down again, returning our attention to breathing, to space, to the moment we are in. As we continue the practice, we will probably notice patterns in our distracting thoughts, habits of worry or self-obsession or annoyance or fantasy. We will begin to notice the depth of the channel these kinds of thoughts have dug in us, but also begin to be able to redirect the channels and put new ones in place. Channels of attention, peacefulness, gentleness to ourselves and to the world. We don't need any religious explanation to see why such practices work for us. For us who are complex and interdependent beings, who can never separate out our mind, body and spirit, meditation teaches us how to attend to our wholeness. But... As a Christian theologian, I can't help seeing another dimension to meditation, which might give a different kind of account of what is going on when we meditate. As a Christian, I know myself to be a creature, a being made by God, not by accident, not to fulfil some lack in God, not to perform any task that God needed done, but simply because God's overflowing love and creativity calls into being a universe and gives it freedom, agency and creativity all of its own. God creates what is genuinely not God, and God loves what is created. That means that the complex interaction of all the processes, mental and physical, that makes us human beings are a gift. And meditation focuses 
on this giftedness. It asks us to trust ourselves and our world as, at the deepest level, beneficent, meaning well to us. However much the world may have the power to damage us, and we to damage ourselves and each other, that is not its first and most basic effect. As we meditate, simply attending to the moment, we are blessed. Christian meditation also assumes that as in meditation we attend to the moment, we are also being attended to. We are not just learning to see and hear where we are, but also learning that we are seen and heard. In our crowded lives and over-busy minds, God is still present and attentive. But there are so many distractions and barriers that prevent us from noticing and receiving the loving, patient, healing attention of God. Meditation as the practice of the presence of God might help us see why it is such a powerful habit, because it opens in us a space to receive ourselves again from the one who made us in love, the one who came to live in a human life, to fill our created reality with the generosity of the creator, the one who prays in us endlessly, wordlessly, joyfully, that we are beloved, known, invited, and set free. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen allowed. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.